Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Randall Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 195. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest, Ann Casey, will be here in about 10 minutes or so. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Um, all we ask is that you uh, push something to help spread poetry around the internet. Push uh, the like button or subscribe or ring the bell for notifications or leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or, or Amazon Music or anywhere else you're listening to this later. Um, make sure you're like following our Facebook page and leave comments there too because Facebook is kind of there's still a lot of people on Facebook but it's a little a bit of a dying out kind of situation so the more you can comment and talk about poems there the better too whatever you can do to help spread poetry around is greatly appreciated now as always will be the uh, Rattlecast we'd like to start with the news poem for the week and this is one of those um, under the radar news stories but not really because it's like a viral thing but it's in the news it's interesting that Amy Miller was talking about and here she is she was the guest on Rattlecast number 72 a couple years ago, and here she is back again, Amy Miller. Hey, Amy, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, so good glad to, to have here. you back. You're one of those people who um, is a veteran of Poets Respond. You've been on, I didn't count the number of times, but it's been a few times for Poets Respond, a few issues as well. As well. Tell us what, what inspired this poem that you uh, sent us this week. Sure. Um, this was a uh, map. It was. It, I got it through a Smithsonian Institution link but it's called like dinosaurs something.org or whatever. And it's a it's an interactive globe, basically, um, where you can type in your city and it shows you where your city is on the globe. And then you can click on a, a little pull down menu and you can go back 20 million years to begin with. And it shows you where your home was on the earth 20 million years ago, because of course the plates were moving around. So my my place in my house in Oregon uh, moved south. You can see it moving southward, and then you go back another another twenty million years or fifteen million years or whatever, and then you can really start seeing like the oceans were different and the and the coasts were different. And so my my house was moving down the coast, and then eventually it was like beachfront property, and then it was underwater at about a hundred million years ago, and then at about two hundred million years, it's it says we can't find it because the plate didn't exist there. It might have been more than two hundred million years. But the the really crazy part is that down in a corner of this map on the screen, it's telling you what was going on on the Earth at that time. So it's telling you, you know, dinosaurs roamed the Earth. Uh, there were you know X number of species, and um, flowers hadn't hadn't were not a thing yet, or flowers were just becoming a thing at this point. Um, and then it tells you all very quietly also, there had been a mass extinction or there was about to be a mass extinction right before here or right after here. And there were, of course, five, at least five mass extinctions that we know of, um, the dinosaurs being the, the most, uh, the best known one, but there were a couple that were much bigger than that one. There was one that wiped out about 90% of all species on earth. They were all plants at that time, but you know, only 10% of them survived. And it took hundreds of millions of years for the planet to recover and for life to to get as abundant as it was before. And that's happened at least five times. And of course, we all know this, right? We've all seen Nova and we all learn this in school or, or whatever. But um, I don't know, for some reason, this time it just really stuck in my mind about just how long geological time is and this tiny, tiny, tiny little spot that we occupy in it. And it makes me wonder about all the other civilizations that may have come and gone during that time and sentient life forms. And, um, and of course, where are we going to end up in this blink of an eye that we're, that we're going to be here? So it was very sobering, really, and, and, um, 
and um, disheartening <laughs> and, and filled with wonder at the same time. It was a real mix of emotions. Yeah. Um, and I could not get that idea out of my mind. Yeah, that's something that's always fascinated me because I've, I've always been a really interested in Gobekli Tepe and that, that civilization that seemed to be around 12,000 years ago for the last cataclysm, whatever it was that, that caused the massive flooding, the Missoula floods and melted the ice, you know, mm -hmm. the glaciers suddenly. And, and we have all the flood myths from it, from the people who survived. And imagining living then, it really puts life in perspective, you know, it's similar mm -hmm. to like the blue dot photo um, from NASA too, where you just kind of think yeah. of your smallness with something like that. Um, and since, so this poem came, came to be um, from that. Do you want to go ahead and read it? On seeing my home move sure. backward through geological time. Okay. Of course, I picture the actual house, my little peaked roof, riding the plate southward, back through Neocene, Cretaceous, beachfront, then submarine, and passing through the dinosaurs so fast, they were only our granddads, but there before the flowers began. So long, but what is long, when before them, everything felt the world die off, a 76% extinction. And that's not even the big one before that, when almost all of the plants died. What I thought would be wonder, instead has me thinking about lab tests, and art, and sitting with friends, and laughing, and the speckness of us all, and the fathoms of space. And us, just wisps, white forms on an x-ray, nature riffing out another subspecies, us with wild and practical hair, and voices that sing at the kitchen window while we're doing the dishes. And although my neighbors have a new sound system and the Lord of the Rings on endless replay, I feel forgiving toward them tonight with their magic and sleepy brotherhood. I mean, it's all extinction eventually. And look at us. We made movies about dinosaurs. And a boy walking by the water found the tooth of a mammoth just last month, that recent in the blink of life in the vast dry eye of the planet. It's possible to think more than one thing at once. That's evolution for you. And fear of leaving this life rides right along with a oneness with the megalodons and the algae. And the die-offs, I can hardly say the word. We all have fallen, cancered, arterially seized, so many, many times, entire oceans of loss and leaving. Tonight, four pillows on the couch lie together like a pile of sleeping cats. The prayer plant closes its long hands. The Christmas lights will have to come down from the doorway, dark bulbs from another season, while the house moves swiftly through the year. Yeah, just love that poem. Always love poems that um, kind of bring us together and, and make us feel a, a sense of the, the community and the, the commonness we all have in being human beings, too. That's one of the things I'm always kind of trying to find in the submissions of Poets Respond, which all tend to be so negative. There's something about that type of perspective that sort of brings us together and has a, a warmer feeling involved, too, even though it's talking about extinctions, which are not really warm. Um, but thanks so much, Amy, for joining us. It's just always a pleasure seeing you and, and sharing your work. I always love to. Thank you. Yep, take care.
See you later. Yep, that was Amy Miller, uh, this week's Poets Respond Poet. Uh, her poem, On Seeing My Home Move Backward Through Geological Time, was uh, the poem of the day on Sunday. Now we're going to take a uh, quick break and uh, go to our main guest, Anne Casey. So sit tight, and I will be right back with Anne. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, like I said, tonight's guest is Anne Casey. Originally from the west of Ireland, Anne Casey is a poet and writer living in Sydney, Australia now. We mentioned last week there's a whole kind of Irish diaspora where there's a lot of people, poets in the Irish issue are all over the world, and Anne is one of them. Over a 30-year career, she has worked in as a business journalist, writer, magazine editor, media communications director, and legal author. She's author of five books of poetry, including one co-authored with U.S. poet Heather Bourbeau. She served as vice president of Voices of Women Incorporated, a not-for-profit and performance arts initiative. She's been guest editor of Not Very Quiet Journal and is a senior poetry editor for the two literary journals of Swinburne University, Melbourne, um, Other Train Journal, and Backstory Journal. She served in numerous editorial advisory boards and is the founding member of the Irish-Australian Women's Arts Ensemble, Prank Queens. Um, she's serving as a guest editor for the archive issue of Rabbit Poetry Journal right now. Um, and you can find more at anne-casey.com. And here she is, Anne Casey. Hey, Anne, so glad you could have us here join us today. Thank you so much, Tim. It's an absolute thrill to be with you. Yeah, I'm such a fan of your work and, and just your uh, your presence, too, like on social media. Speaking of warmness, it's always nice to, to see uh, your posts encouraging people and things like that uh, over the years. Um, so so glad to have you on finally and to be talking about your books. Um, do you want to start out with a poem? And, and I should say that we're going to move through um, a lot of your books in this uh, sequence that you sent. So I'm glad to, to be able to look at a lot of your work and, and what you've been doing and what, what's forthcoming, too. Uh, let's start out with one. Thanks so much. So I thought I'd start with a tribute from this prodigal daughter to my beloved late mother. Um, After this poem was published first in the Irish Times in 2016, it went a little viral. So I think, you know, the diaspora connection kind of picked it up. So here it is. In memoriam to the draper. The town is dead. Nothing but the wind howling down Main Street and a calf bawling outside the fiddlers. My mother's words, not mine. In a letter kept in a drawer these long years. She had a way with words, my mother. That's why they came, the faithful of her following. Leaning into her over the counter for an encouraging word or the promise of a novena. Long before we had local radio, our town had my mother. Harbinger of the death notices and the funeral arrangements, bestower of colloquial wisdom, bearer of news on all things great and small. Who was home and who hadn't come? Who had got the civil service job and by what bit of pull? The councillor's niece smoke in her new navy suit, oblivious to the circulating countersuit. Would you ever think of coming home? Her words would catch me unawares, lips poised at the edge of a steaming mug, igniting a spitfire of resentment each time, then draping me for days. I'd wear it like a horsehair shirt, all the way back, until the sunshine and the hustle had worn it threadbare, this extra bit of baggage in every immigrant's case. 
their mother's broken heart. I never thought to ask her, would you want me to? So I could look out at the rain circumnavigating the empty street and shiver at the wind whipping in under the door. I don't miss that question now on my annual pilgrimage home. My father never asks it. Like me, I know he feels it hanging in the air alongside her absence. I miss my mother and her way with words. Yeah, beautiful poem. Um, that was um, in, memor- in Memoriam 2, The Draper. And um, so, so you mentioned that poem went viral. So I'm wondering, what do you think about about it was, um, you know, that, that struck a chord with people? What, what, what do, um, I've, I've kind of thought about which poems for Rattle have kind of gone viral in that way, in, in the yeah. commonality. So I'm kind of curious what you think it was about that poem in particular, because you've written a whole bunch of poems, you know, and why was it that one that, um, that so many people were sharing? Yeah, um, look, I mean, first of all, it was in the Irish Times, so it has a broad circulation. And I think, you know, people read it if it's been in that paper. But um, there were a huge number of comments in the newspaper and then people tracking me down on social media and my website. Um, and the the chord they struck, people... And it wasn't just Irish people, but particularly Irish people from rural areas who had this experience of choosing to have a life overseas or or being pressed into having a life overseas. When I left Ireland, it was deep recession in the early 90s. And there weren't a lot of choices. You know, there weren't a lot of jobs around. So going overseas was a great opportunity for many of us. Um, you know, Ireland's biggest export has always been known as educated young people. Um, so um, I think it struck a chord with a lot of diaspora who felt this pull back, um, but really didn't have the choice to go back. Um, their lives were located elsewhere, but there's always this guilt of the Irish mammy. You know, she's she was so gifted with her words, as I put in, in that poem. Um, you know, I had people... Um, who contacted me from places like Mayo in the north, you know, north of where I come from, who said, that's my mother, that she had a little shop in a rural town. And, you know, I, I relate so much to that and to that drawback. Um, and, and it was always that one line, would you ever think of coming home? Mm-hmm. And then I had people, you know, Canadians who were based in Europe and Americans based in Australia. There were so many people who also connected with that thing, you know, that one thing of being far from home and, and your family, your own original family, that that sense of connection, but also a little bit of guilt. Um, and it, it's not what I intended with the poem. You know, I was actually paying tribute to my mom, who I'd lost. Um, but I think that's really that poem and the experience with it taught me that that's what poetry does, at least for me. It, it touches this chord within us, that that deep human chord. And, and I think that's when 
poetry really works is when you can connect universally with anyone. And I, I've had that amazing, I love that experience when, you know, you read a poem and I read a lot of poems, but you read a poem and suddenly you're weightless, you're timeless. It doesn't matter if the poem was written in the second century or the 21st century or in Ireland or Egypt or the USA, suddenly you're in that poet poet's head mm-hmm. your heart connects with exactly their human experience so that's what yeah, yeah I, I think it's just so well put and i think it's really true i was i was thinking about it when you mentioned that about the poems which i've thought of before of the ones that sort of went most viral in rattle.com's history and they're all about sort of articulating this desire for connection actually which is really interesting to to think of in the same way that, that yours was too um there's a sort of like like articulating something that hasn't been spoken about wanting to have connection seems to be like the most viral poems. We had um, Death and Tacos is our most viral poem ever, which is about somebody talking to a kid while going through chemotherapy and sharing a taco kind of, if you can go back and read that when everybody listening. Then we had the Dispatch from Seattle by Sherman Alexie, which was about like the lockdown, first of all, and, and for connection there. Then we had um, Things My Son Should Know After I've Died, which is connecting to your your son, your imaginary child. And then the Telemarketer was a poem about um, a connecting with somebody because you have those conversations with telemarketers. You never connect on any kind of real level. And so it was thinking about that. And so the all, they're all uh, poems of connection, which is just a fascinating thing to think of as yours was too. And maybe we should uh, have more connections <laughs> right about them too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also, it's almost like, you're seen for the first time and Mm -hmm. and I think with that poem I gave people permission to say yes I made the choice to go and so yes I'm very grateful for all the gifts that's brought me and the opportunities but there's also this awful side to it Mm -hmm. you know because often as immigrants we feel we can't complain because everyone thinks we have life so good, hmm. you know, um, and we made the choice. So so that was on us. But actually, there's this whole other side where, you know, there are heartbreak times. And, and we've certainly been through those with COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, we I couldn't get home to see family for three years. My husband, who's also from Ireland, lost both his parents during COVID. We couldn't get back for funerals because, of course, the Australian government locked us in. Um so, yeah. So anyway, I think in some ways also that's what those poems of connection are about. They're about saying, oh, well, look, someone else had that experience mm-hmm. too, so it's actually okay yeah. to say it mm-hmm. out loud. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Really well put. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about your, you know, how you uh, came into poetry because you had such an interesting background too, going to law school and, and doing, you know, legal legal writing and then you know, communications and things like that. And then and not that long ago, you sort of shifted into poetry um, more completely and fully. Um, were you always writing poems? And, and what, what, what triggered that shift where you were really focusing on poetry after a really broad, interesting career outside of it? Thank you. Sorry, I just mentioned my dog is barking. Uh-huh. We can't hear <laughs> him, actually. I don't think I can hear him now, background. so we're good. Because there's a mower going outside, which is so classically Australian. <laughs> you can never time it. Um, but uh, hopefully he won't bark too much. Um, sorry, uh, I'm just completely <laughs> No, I was just asking about your, uh, your, your, your move into poetry from all the other things yes, you were sorry. writing and doing. Yes, yeah, of yeah. course. 
Look, I was completely surrounded by poetry from the moment I was born, basically. My father quoted poetry to me throughout my childhood, my schooling. I mean, growing up in Ireland, poetry is everywhere. Um, it's literally in the fabric of society. When you got on Aer Lingus, the, the national airline, it was woven into the seats. You know, it's woven into carpets, it's painted on walls, people throw it out the windows when we have a crisis, like during COVID, you know, lines from Seamus Heaney were painted on um, sheets and put out. And, uh, you know, that was done as a signal of hope. Um, but poetry was embedded in in my growing up, absolutely embedded. And so, you know, by the age, as soon as I could hold a pencil, I, I was trying to write something. Um, and I wrote my first poem when I was about eight years old and I was terrible. <laughs> but, you know, I showed it to my parents and they connected with what I was trying to say. And I had this epiphany and I fell in love with this idea that you can put markings on a piece of paper and someone else can enter your head and your heart. You know, I, I, that blew me away at that very young age. And so, of course, I ran straight upstairs and wrote another three poems and came back down and got promptly sent off to bed. <laughs> um, so, But the magic lasted and it's never left me. And forever after I was writing poems, I, when I was a journalist and I'd interview some politician, I would write a satire on a beer mat in the pub afterwards. <laughs> But all of those things, you know, all of those bits and pieces of poetry just got lost in the detritus of life in the sawdust of many pubs. And, you know, they were a moment's entertainment um, on a night out or, you know, they were in notebooks um, lost in many travels. Um, but it was really the death of my mother that brought me back to poetry. Um, I think somehow in processing that great loss. I was very close to her and her her death was a, a little premature and, and, and awful. <laughs> um, yeah, I think over a number of years trying to just process that, it came out in, in poetry. And I did write quite a few poems about that old time. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, as I say, being Irish... I think most Irish people have a connection to poetry. Mm -hmm. It's different in Australia. I think to some extent poetry is seen as a little elitist here or something written in code that's not accessible to to everyone. Um, but that's changing too. Mm -hmm. well, that's, that's, good. Really that's kind of the American version maybe of poetry too. It's yeah. the academic, you know, pursuit and, yeah. you know, I'm a in some a softball league and everybody thinks it's hilarious that I'm a poet and do poetry <laughs> stuff. They just, they find it like fascinating and bizarre and, um, you know, think I'm, I feel so out of place. Um, and that's kind yeah. of how it goes in America. How, how typical is that? Is, is it uh, growing up in Ireland? Does everybody feel like they're surrounded by poetry? Cause here, you know, you, some people do in a way, you know, some people happen to grow up in that childhood or they like stumble on it. They write a poem somebody loves and then they, mm -hmm. they start to sort of weave into it that way. Um, is, is it something that's really normal? I always try to get a sense of other of other cultures and, and poetry's place within it. It's hard to imagine different places besides your own, though. Yeah. So so is it uh, like, uh, yeah, how typical is that? 
I mean, I feel it's very typical of Ireland, uh, but, you know, everyone has their own unique view on things. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like everywhere I go in Ireland, there's poetry, you know, in the pubs. Um, there's a music festival in my hometown every year so celebrating traditional music and storytelling and um, Shanno singing, which is the old way of singing. Um, and, um, you know, poetry is part of that. Um and, you know, even a couple of years ago, I, I came home and I jumped in a cab and the guy, the cabbie said to me, what's your favourite Yeats poem? And I said, oh, you know, A and Klaus Fevin. And, um, and he promptly recited it. And I said, well, what if I had said, you know, it was something else, Easter of 1916. And he promptly, re- you know, <laughs> recited that. Yeah. And I said, no, really? Like, and he said, I know every Yeats poem. Oh, wow. Ask me anything. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the Ireland I grew up in. It Anyone would quote poetry to you. And I think it was partly the education. I think also this embracing of Irish culture as well, because, of course, you know, our culture was so suppressed for so long during colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I think there's this real pride in culture. Having said that, you know, here in Australia, there's a really lively pub poetry scene um, and there's certainly, you know, poetry everywhere if you go looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, a little bit like in America, um, I just uh, in December, I I, um, went home to Ireland through America and was lucky enough to be able to visit some poetry venues. and, uh, you know, on a previous trip I had too. And, yeah, there's definitely a very similar, you know, scene where people who are into poetry are really into poetry and they will come and gather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's a great, you know, a, a small community, but a great community, I think, in uh, in the U.S. I think being you know, sort of marginalized by the, the mainstream makes it feel that way. And there's a sort of a camaraderie that develops from that. Um, but, but the next poem I think you have is, is about growing up in West Ireland. So uh, do you want to do you want to share that that now? Uh, so I was going to read the season of Samhain. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what you're thinking. So yeah, this um, takes the traditions from where I come from in the west of Ireland around um, Samhain, which is the ancient Celtic pagan feast of the dead. Um, so. This uh, was actually published in Nimrod in November. Um, And it's from my fifth collection with Heather Borbo. Season of Samhain. Shadows are racing, racing across the distended bodies of the Monstera. A merciless ruckus in the highest branches of the quivering gums. As I search this second morning of November for messages from my dead. In the teeth of a bitter breeze, the seething hiss and whisper passing under a hundred bluish lips amongst the jacaranda's first cautious offerings to this immortal season. Last night, I might have followed after my late mother in quiet vigil, lighting rows of tea lights to lick the edges of cut glass passed down from her own late mother. Shades lifted, a window cracked, cups poured, an extra chair 
to prepare a welcome for all our dearly departed might have woken this morning to look for footprints in cold ashes, a kiss of bluish lips on shiny rims. Yeah, wonderful. That was a season of Samhain uh, by Anne Casey from um, from Nimrod, and that's just out from your in your most recently published book. Um, one of the things I was thinking about while putting this issue of Rattle together is the way that. Um, like mythology seems to be more present and sort of a supernatural sort of air in Ireland at the same time as the poetry does too. And so I'm, I was wondering if, um, if it's the poetry that creates that or the, that, that helps help the poetry, like, like how are the, what's the interplay between mythology and poetry there? Do you think, is it that we, that the storytelling tradition is so strong that we sort of, you know, love those stories even more and, and, and they, they have a bigger cultural, you know, weight to them, or, or how how does that work? Yeah, um, I wouldn't have said the mythology was so intertwined in poetry, um, but there isn't there is a real kind of wave going on now. I've really noticed where our mythology is being kind of brought through poetry. Um, I mean, Ivan Boland has always done that, and um, or had. Um, and Seamus Heaney, you know, there are certain poets who have done that over time, but there there does seem to be a resurgence in that. However, you know, having grown up in Ireland, we were taught the ancient mythology at school and in the community, you know, if you were great at hurling, you know, um, which is like the Irish version of hockey, um, someone would say, oh, there goes Cucullin, you know, so, you know, relating to a myth. So everyone knew the myths um, or, you know, if someone had beautiful blonde hair, you should be called Niamh Kianor, uh, who's another um, head of gold um, uh, uh, princess from, from Irish mythology. So it, it's always been there. Um, and as I say, I think there's a real, um, there has been a real desire to re-embrace the Celtic pagan um, mythology of Ireland. And the performance group I'm involved with here in Australia, it's mostly, uh, it's an Irish-Australian group of women, feminists to some extent, um, re-embracing Irish mythology through poetry, music and song. And that's um, really well supported, I have to say, by the Irish consulate here um, in Sydney. Um, but so we take things like Samhain, the Feast of the Dead, or Nolignamon, which is the Christmas for women. Um, and you'll find, uh, and Bialtana, um, which is the spring festival. Um, and um, then we do um, Bridget, the Feast of Bridget, who was um, actually the goddess of poetry, amongst other things. Um, and uh, actually, you'll find, of course, that all of these were originally pagan feasts, which were then subsumed into Christianity um, as a way of drawing, you know, the Celts into, into Christianity by not eradicating their their happy days through the year. Um, but now we're reclaiming those back as their original, you know, and the, the traditions, the beautiful traditions, many of which survived in rural areas like where I come from. Um, we're trying to, to regenerate interest in, in what they were originally meant to be before they got colonized. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I haven't really talked about poetry, but I, I, you know, as a result of 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 that, you know, that movement in a way, I'm of course embracing the mythology and poetry as well, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. It's yeah. really wonderful. Yeah, I just love to. I mean, the world. I mean, poetry is magic, and the world of yes. sort of mythology and, and that aspect of humanity is so much richer, you know, than absolutely. than sort of just thinking about the world as like materialistic. Yeah you know, electrons bouncing off each other or whatever. Yeah, just... absolutely. And, you know, embedded in these indigenous um, beliefs are are really strong, you know, conservation um, roots that that are so important and, and laws to do with the way we interact with nature that really are, are all about sustainability and legacy um, and about belonging to earth rather than, earth belonging to us and about respecting, revering mother nature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, you know, all of that, we really need to tap back in and and listen to that. I feel like, you know, everything about modern life is, is, you know, disconnecting us from those really core um, belief systems that, that would help us, you know, in this changing changing world but you know the the proliferation of of urban life which really separates you from having your feet in the earth and 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 being with nature in that way i come from a very rural area so i find it you know it's i've never been able to separate myself from nature in that way. But I know people who've grown up in cities and I I can feel there's a difference in the way that we relate to to the world in that way. I think, I really do think poets have a certain consciousness that tends to look outward like that into nature and try and embrace that within our art, uh, which I think is a really important function of poetry that we try to connect with those, you know, part, uh, fundamental parts of who we should be or have been as as humans. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. poetry is sort of the original, um, like, guidance that we had, you know, through storytelling and through symbolic meaning and, and how to live a good life. And now we have, you know, the, the technical nature of laws and guidelines and instructions manuals and you can look anything up on google and and there's a very like precise technical materialistic way of confronting truth that we have now whereas poetry is this you know truth through storytelling um yeah yeah and you mentioned magic sorry i just have to say that you know at times when i've been writing um poetry related to the mythology i have found that poems turn into almost incantations um, and and that's been a really strange and startling thing. And it's funny to feel the words have this strange incantatory power. Um, and actually, there's a wonderful chamber um, composer here, David Yardley, who's who started putting those particular poems to music, and it, it creates an even more um, you know, potent mix, I feel, because, of course, music also opens the soul in the same way that I, I feel that poetry does. Um, so that's been an amazing privilege to to hear poems, you know, transformed in that way as well. 
Yeah, it's always um, so interesting to me, you know, thinking about poetry in that way, because it feels so true Then, you know, coming from a science type background that I had um, to, to think of how poems sort of manifest reality in a way. And, and there's a way that, that somehow our consciousness is tuned into our storytelling and the frames that we put. And there's a collective nature of that that moves through everything. And it feels like like in a way that our poems in our thoughts are, are generating the world around us and not vice versa, which is a really sort of out there thing to think about, but it's, it's it is, so but true. <laughs> I know, but that is so a part of our indigenous culture in Ireland. And, you know, recently I've really started to connect with the, you know, indigenous beliefs here and, and how po indigenous poets in Australia are, are bringing out their own mythologies and beliefs through poetry. And it's just extraordinary how connected they are and how similar they are to to our beliefs in you know in Ireland that have mm -hmm. come through our mythology and poetry and you know back in the days of the ancient Celts you know a thousand two thousand three thousand years ago the, the poets were called high poets or philly they were the chief advisors to the high kings and and incantations were part of their job mm -hmm. you know and advice and, you know, the power of words was really seen as as a very important part of of ruling and of community. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I think of, um, you know, there, there's always the problem of um, confusing correlation for causation, you know. And and so we think that we're writing about, you know, right now there's a sort of a negativity to, to the way we're feeling. We're feeling anxious about so many things and it's coming through in our writing and our media and stuff. But but partly maybe it's the other way around, and maybe it's the the writing of that and focusing on that that manifests itself. One of the things that's really strange to think about is the way that UFOs appeared is a myth, right? When we had airplanes, and so we're imagining, and then we're like putting them in the sky, even though they're not actually there, but they see them and they're part of the culture because of it. And how everything is actually like that, you know? Like like once yeah. we start thinking of a thing and our imaginations take over, then they start it starts existing. And you know how many books are written about UFOs. And how many films and documentaries and, you know, evidence there is and congressional hearings and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it's the manifestation of our imagination in the sky. Well, I think it's also our desire. You know, we have this desire to believe in something outside of what we currently know. And, you know, frankly, if you read certain theories about space and, you know, quantum physics and, you know, a lot of it's beyond me. But when I do actually read some of that stuff, I go, wait a second, these guys don't really know that much. They're guessing here. You know, I think, you know, in science, there's a lot of guesswork. And when you start reading that stuff, you go, hey, this isn't far from mythology to me. You know, mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of guys putting these theories out there with some, you know, maybe not so much evidence. <laughs> what, what's different, you know? Yeah, I mean, those are the, the mythologies of the day. And Nate Jacobs yeah. says, you mean UFOs aren't real? <laughs> I mean, maybe they <laughs> well, are. My, or maybe we, I, I, think, you know, we, I think we make them real, honestly. I think we made gods real. We kind of stopped believing in gods and then we made <laughs> UFOs real instead. That's my, that's my personal uh, mythos, I guess. Well, so I have two teenage sons and <laughs> every so often, you know, they'll, they're mad scientists. They love it. Um, every so often, I go, see the magic. <laughs> How do all those little dots inside us hang together so that, you know, we're made of atoms? 
it's magic. <laughs> it is. It really, it really is. I mean, there's so many, uh, there's so many things that are magic, and poetry is one of them. Uh, let's hear another poem. That's a good segue because I just, I love chatting with poets, but we got to do poems too because everybody loves poems. So uh, let's hear the next one. Um, so, well, actually, the next one comes from um, the same Celtic faced Samhain, but I've looked at, you know, how it's it got transformed into the Christian festival of all, or feast of all souls. Um, and in particular, I've looked at um, the idea of the mother and baby homes. I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but um, these were institutions in Ireland run by Catholic nuns. Um, and they were located all over Ireland, uh, where thousands of women and girls were incarcerated uh, under very harsh conditions because they were unmarried and pregnant. Um, in 2017, the bodies of 800 babies were discovered under um, in a septic tank under one of these homes, which resulted in a, a major inquiry, and that turned out to be the tip of the iceberg. And it's a really horrifying history wow. of illegal adoptions, illicit vaccine trials, and unmarked mass graves. So this poem touches on that um, around my own experience of uh, the Feast of All Souls. All Souls, a citrus swirl of myrtle crosses my path as three skulking brush turkeys scatter dramatically into the understory. Crushed sandstone scrapes under flagging sandals, blending with the tick-tick distant and more insistent chitter and chirrup, perpetual trisagion against the far-off clamour of trucks and cars, morphing this second day of November into the roll and thunder of mist-capped surf on distant shores. And there's the sharp salt catch at the back of the pallet, my mother standing, arms thrown out against the Atlantic's roar, embracing the world with a desperate love like Jesus after the delivery of her death sentence and before her crucifixion. Too far away, too long ago, but still the piercing and the gush of water, the salt rub of old wounds crossing time and space, the quick chirp of a message from my father, 11 hours behind, but instantaneously dispatching me to the fiery pits of hell, where starched sisters must surely be burning. Pharaohs in their hooded head coverings, shepherding the little children and their unmarried mothers through famishment into lightless catacombs, saving an anointed few born nameless in Moses' baskets unto the promised land. A kookaburra laughing carries me home through the clearing where the wattles are bursting, their golden crowns dancing against a brooding backdrop, and rainbow lorikeets will swoop in later, lifting our hearts out of emptied cups and away with them into the heavens. And that was All Souls, again, by Anne Casey. Thanks so much for sharing that. Another another touching poem and, and um, you know, hard hard topics. Um, that's the other thing I was thinking about, too, when putting together the Irish Poetry Show. Like you're reading all the, what's so fascinating, actually, about the tribute themes that we do are reading all the notes. 
um, you know, because we published the, you know, 18 or however many poets that are in that issue, but hundreds of poets submitted them. So I got to hear and read about all the things people think about um, poetry in Ireland and what makes an Irish poet an Irish poet and things like that. And one of the things that came up a lot more than I realized is how much um, sort of a cultural psychic trauma exists in Ireland. And I wonder if that is a lot of the wellspring of the poetry, because there's like more of a need for poetry, because poetry is a way that we heal ourselves from psychological trauma is one of its primary functions, you know, and in, in ways that are that are proven scientifically, we're talking about before, but, but it, you just feel it too. And like you, when your mother died, got back into poetry because you needed it, you know? And so in Ireland, do, do you feel like there's a need for poetry? And that's one of the things that draws out poets in Ireland. Oh, absolutely. I'd never thought about it really in those terms before, but that's absolutely true. Every time there's a national crisis or a major, you know, outpouring on something, someone's painting poetry somewhere, you know, it's on wall, it's in graffiti, it's on sheets thrown out the windows. Um, You know, yeah, it's true. We do. We embrace and also song, you know, song has been used as a way of healing too for a very long time. And, um, you know, it has been observed that there's a lot of great tragedy in in Irish music and song. Um, and you know what? There is because there's some really tragic history too. There's been some extraordinary um brutality and and loss in Ireland and I, I feel like to some extent we you know we've grown through this soil of all of that loss the, the literally blood-stained soil um and yeah we do definitely reach to the arts um and you know Irish dance as well there's all kinds of symbolism I sort of feel like you know we've grown up with this idea that there's a huge amount of symbolism in art. And I actually think that goes back to, um, you know, poetry um, during colonization and the, you know, the extremes of the British rule when, where Irish culture was suppressed under the penal laws. Um, poetry was used, was used as a way, a, a subversive political protest, right? So, so embedded in the poetry were coded political messages. And you know what? The core of that, the most important message that was passed on was hope. Hmm. It was hope that we will overcome this. Um, and the the Ashling poetry that emerged in the 17th century is a really really strong example of that, where um, there were all these poems starting you know um, with one particular one um, by Mackay, um, and um, Ireland was uh, symbolised as this beautiful woman, um, and you know who she would have lost her children or whatever. And basically she was symbolizing um, the colonization of Ireland and the loss of people and traditions. Um, But always there was hope, um, whether it was strangers coming across the waves or, um, you know, because we did get a lot of help from um, the French and Spanish sending galleons of soldiers to try and um, free Ireland, and um, but also uprisings around the country. And and specific poems at local levels were actually passing on times and dates of rebellions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I came from the rebel county 
County Clare is like really well known as a, um, a rebel um, centre during um, the Irish War of Independence. In fact, my own family home that I grew up in was burned to the ground by British soldiers um, when my grandfather was 13, oh, wow. um, as were a number of other houses in the town. So I actually grew up in the ashes of that house, if you like. It, you know, the house was rebuilt. But that story was so prominent in my childhood. I mean, I almost felt like I could smell the smoke. Um, and if you walk through my town now, you can see the the jagged roof line um, where those houses that were burnt were rebuilt. Oh, wow. So we grew up embedded in that history. But, but you know, I absolutely agree with you. Poetry was used not only as a way of passing on traditions and, you know, these histories and subversion, um, which we love. I mean, I'm, I write a lot of political protest poetry, um, which I try to, you know, I try to marry the beauty of language with it as well. So it's not, you know, it's sort of a rant. Mm -hmm. It's It's got hopefully a little more art. Um, but... Um, yeah, it, I love that idea that poetry can contain whole worlds of of layers. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of my poetry has many layers, um, not just juxtapositions, but within the words themselves, there are layers to them. Um, and I think that's because I've grown up with that idea that poetry contains more. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, at the heart of it, there was always this light. And at the heart of it, no matter how dark the thing I'm writing about, I will always try and find the light as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and kind of maybe a good segue into the next poem, How to Survive an Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, here we go. How to Survive an Apocalypse. Practice social media distancing. After every exposure, thoroughly wash heart for at least 20 seconds. Do not hoard statistics. They have a short shelf life and offer questionable nourishment. Wherever possible, dress inappropriately. Seek advice from trees. Trust the judgment of animals, even the tiniest ones. Practice free flight in your head, become attracted to light, love immoderately, if in doubt, dance. Yeah, and there's How to Survive an Apocalypse uh, by Anne Casey. And that, that made me think about, um, do you kind of, in a weird way, miss the pandemic? Because <laughs> I was thinking about how, <laughs> you know, because... You know, the kids, my kids weren't in school, so we'd go on hikes every day. We had like a, let's get vitamin D and go out in the sun. So let's go out in the woods and, and we'd go on like a two hour hike or something just to get some exercise and we'd just talk about everything. And, and now you know, they're back in school. They're back in Little League. They're back in the theater club. Every day after school is busy. Every weekend they have some birthday party or another Little League game. And it's just like the slowness of that life, you know, and, yeah. and, the, and, the, and just the, the closeness too. Um, where yeah. you don't have any other in it, there was weirdly, um, it's like a fond memory. I was thinking. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it's probably a popular thing to say, but I loved the slowness of it. 
Um, I feel, especially, you know, living in Sydney, it's such a race all the time. There's such an artificial busyness to everything. I don't know what drives it, but yeah, I have two teenage boys. It's obviously, you know, driving it a lot. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's this kind of frenzy right outside your doorstep that sort of seeps in under the doors. Um, and sometimes I feel like I just have to get out of the city. Um, but we are very blessed in that we we live near um, a reserve, so you can get out into the trees pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always find I I find my peace in that. You know, I have to have a walk every day. The days I don't have a walk, I think the busyness starts to take over. But once you get out into nature, yeah, it starts to slow down again. Yeah. What do you think it is about that? Do you think it's something? You know, is it a spiritual connection to nature? Is it because that's where we evolved and we belong out there? Or is it because of just the quiet, you know, and just that there's not constant, you know, interactions or the potential interactions or the potential for, you know, uh, certain photons to bounce off a screen into your eyeballs? Is it, is it, um, is it, what is it about nature that, that's healing in that way? In a similar way that, that poetry is, really. Yeah, look, I deliberately put down my phone when I'm out there. Mm-hmm. I think that's great because sometimes I feel like we've evolved to have an extension of our hands which is called a phone um and it's awful it's you know we're not just on one device we're on three devices simultaneously now that's become the norm and i think that really adds to the frenzy so when you put all that down yeah i do feel i belong there i I belong more by the sea because that's where i grew up but i absolutely when i get out in under the trees here i just find this stillness and this beauty and the light coming through them and the birds i i I just feel it gives me pause and it gives me back you know i feel refreshed no matter what's going on how many deadlines you have if you just take that pause it just completely fills you back up and it doesn't take that long. I, I was reading something recently about trees speaking. Mm-hmm. I love this idea. Um, apparently, they speak through all their root systems, and they also have this symbiotic relationship with fungi. Um, and through the fungi, they communicate across vast spaces. Um, and, and these are conversations that have been going on for hundreds of years. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. Hard to yeah, it's and way. also, yeah. animals can hear this. Okay, so so animals know a drought's coming because the roots of the trees are screaming underground. Mm-hmm. And and trees, this is terrible. <laughs> trees cry when you chop off a limb, oh. or when a nearby tree mm-hmm. is damaged. There's a noise that comes out of the roots. Oh wow! I mean, how terrible! Oh wow! I, there's yeah. so much we don't realize I know. about it makes what's you think going of, on. Somebody, um, maybe it's a, it's in a haiku somewhere, like an ancient Japanese haiku. But somebody sa- says that um, mountains are actually just waves. That you're um, that you're too, you le- your life is too short to see. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just like mind blown thought there, but it's the same thing. I mean, these, yeah. you know, these trees that, I mean, the trees outside are hundreds of years old, you know, and God, they've seen a lot. Um, I think maybe yeah. we should switch, um, you know, jump the next poem and go to the BBC reports. Cause it's an echo poem and you've done a lot yeah. of echo reporting too. So let's talk about that and let's hear the, the BBC reports. Yeah. Right. The BBC reports 
for the first time in history, man-made materials now outweigh all life on earth. I am a child of wind and rain, stone and bog, stratified silt slipping slowly into relentless seas, too long gone now from the elements that shaped me, too far from my childhood shore, these bones throb for home, to distance themselves from decades of these insatiable cliffs of glaring glass and crushing concrete, floors and walls consuming all the wildness that once made us. The rain here speaks the same language as my own, although it falls on altogether foreign terrain. We have lost our way of hearing its words. Yeah, the perfect poem for that moment in the conversation as the BBC reports by Anne Casey. And uh, so, so tell me what you can about about your experience as an as an echo journalist. I, I haven't you know talked to anybody who did that. What did you? What kind of things did you cover? And and how did that did that change you in a way? You know, Ooh. were you um were you yeah. sort of interested in the environment going in, or did it, did it shape the way that you thought of our our place on Earth? Yeah, so that was a long time ago. Um, in the early 90s, I was working in Dublin um, and reporting on the environment. And I had around the same time read a book called Diet for a Small Planet, which really, really fundamentally impacted me. I stopped eating meat and became vegan because mm. I realized the cost. Uh, actually, I'd written about that in a poem, which was a till receipt. Um, the whole poem was this um, till receipt um, at the cost of three um, steaks three beef steaks oh, wow. mm -hmm. and it was basically you know hectares and thousands hundreds of thousands of liters of water and, uh, and antibiotics and everything anyway um but that that book so profoundly impacted me um and then yeah i was uh, working as a, an environment journalist and every single day i was getting these reports this is the early 90s right mm -hmm reports of you know every river in europe was dead um from chemical spills um the air was so badly polluted you know kids were coming down with asthma and cancers and it just was it was quite depressing but it was extraordinary i i was going out of my work telling people this and mm -hmm. they thought i was crazy um because it wasn't being reported um, and I was trying to report it and in absolute disbelief, but understanding that there was something terrible going on that was just not being written about. Um, and I did write about it and I got edited out a lot. Oh, wow. By, a like, lot. by like sponsors to the, to the newspapers yeah, and magazines, well, that kind of thing? Because the, um, the publications I was writing for didn't want to upset the petrochemical companies, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, they would lose, you know, a huge amount of advertising dollars. So as a result, you know, big, large investigative pieces were, came oh, to wow. it. Um, and, yeah, look, over time, I it, it, it really wore me down. And 
anyway, I was, I was still young, so <laughs> I picked up and came to Australia. Like I, I just decided to go on a mad adventure and um, actually go and see the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> the beauty of it. Um, and um, yeah, but uh, it stayed with me. Um, I've always kept an eye on environment um, since then, and I've written many things, um, but particularly poetry. I do a lot mm-hmm. of um, eco poems and eco protest poetry. As I say, I try and add some art or often humor. I think sometimes humor taps into a vein in us as humans where we kind of go, oh, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for um, sure. You know, in a poem, you can put this tiny, you know, three lines of these horrific facts in um, and then, you know, entertain people. But at the end of the day, they go, oh, wait a second, what was that? Um, and I think, you know, that's a really powerful thing poetry can do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can catch people off guard, you know, um, by entertaining them or, or or sucking them in with the beauty. And then there's this like, oh, my God, really? The mm-hmm. oceans are floating in plastic. And, um, yeah, so... Yeah, and, and it's there's there's such an importance to that too. Like we, you know, sometimes worry, or I do, because we do the poets respond stories, which are often about very bleak things, and and you worry if you're like just putting people in a, a down place and making anxiety and depression increase even more. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you know, knowledge is power, and the awareness of it. If that doesn't exist, you can't solve the problems. And so it's so important to to do yeah. that kind of journalism and expose these things so that we can actually start caring and, and making a difference. But we can't, you know, journalism can't do it, honestly. Mm -hmm. There are so few independent places in the world now. They're mostly run by advertising Mm -hmm. um, or or large corporations which are really so tapped into the new colonists in the world, you know, uh, who are, you know, major, major companies. Um, But it's so hard for us to understand what is real, what's independent, what's truth now. Mm And that's where I think, you know, poetry has a really unique place in the world because it's so poorly funded. It's actually truly independent. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's actually a bonus. A lot of the other arts are funded now by corporates. and, and, And I know from curators that there are, you know, underlying, um, sort of demands on them. In regard to themes and stuff, so so we are truly independent. We are truly yeah. trustworthy, I believe. And then there's something too that's really interesting about poetry, and that that I feel like really when I'm reading poems and submissions, what I'm looking for, listening for, and you hear there's a sense uh, is honesty and truth. Like you can hear an authentic voice. And you mentioned that poem going viral before. You know that goes viral because it's such an authentic voice speaking to you you know it's someone who's not bsing anything not telling you what you want to hear but actually speaking from the deeper depths of your soul and we can hear that like we have an ear for that somehow in our minds that can listen for someone who's being honest and and, and there's so much so little of that anymore and, and there's poetry and, and so developing a poet's ear actually develops a truth hearing ear as well in a fascinating way yeah absolutely yeah i i, I mean I, I totally believe in the place of poetry to bring truth. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But also, you know, to connect us as humans on on a really fundamental level in, with regard to the things that are really important to us. 
I, I will I always write about the stuff that's going around in my head. And the noisiest bits that are going around in my head are the things that come out in my poems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so hence eco-poetry. My dog is here again, sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, whatever it is cuts it out really effectively. Um, so the, the next one, let's go back to the one we skipped over. And this was um, an unconventional love poem, which is always fun too. Nothing happens in the burbs. Do you want to read that one? Oh, I think uh, you muted your... I think your dog might have muted you. <laughs> I think your dog... We can't hear. Yeah. Uh, maybe your microphone got unplugged, I think. Sorry, my oh. dog muted me. Yeah, your dog did. <laughs> like, I want some, well, some lunch. Wow, so clever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. Unconventional love poem. Nothing happens in the burps. We lay in bed talking about nothing till two came stomping up the stairs, raging on about nothing. One hot on his heels. What did you do to him? Nothing. After breakfast, you put music on. Adele, Luca Bloom, Joe Cocker, Emily Sande. They had nothing in common but us. 11 a.m. on a Saturday, dancing barefoot in the kitchen, pretending there was nothing going on. I lolled between one and two while you did nothing in the garden, got two's help to move it to the garage. Nothing in the fridge, so we cobbled something together. Nothing on TV, so we watched an expert panel arguing vehemently about nothing the government was doing nothing about while we shook our heads knowing nothing would change. Slouching on the couch, nothing between us but the dog, eight feet in the air, a howl and crash from upstairs. What happened? Nothing. (laughs) In unison, too quick. What was that all about? Nothing at all. We split a cider, yours straight from the bottle, mine from a champagne flute, making an occasion out of nothing till we went to bed in no hurry we had nothing on and there is nothing absolutely nothing i would change uh that's a great love poem i love that that Thanks was um... so much. <laughs> that actually was a... that was um yeah. made into a hip-hop p uh piece on uh, an album by Tucker, who's a big hip-hop artist here, um, and recorded on his album by Sony EMI. So that was a thrill. Yeah, that was really <laughs> yes. cool. Yeah, there was Nothing Happens yeah. in the Burbs. And how did that happen? How did it end up as a hip-hop, in a hip-hop album? Um, so weirdly, he heard me reading at a pub you know, read poetry reading in Sydney and went, oh my God, I've been trying to finish this album. I, I would love to use a line from your poem as the title for the album. It just ties everything together for oh, me. Wow. Which line uh, is that? Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then about a week later, he came back and he said, would you record a reading of that? I'd love to do a backing track and include it on the album. So next thing I'm signing a contract with Sony EMI. Oh, wow. and, yeah, and then he came back again and he asked me for another track. So I did actually did two. And they're both love poems to my husband, <laughs> both very unconventional. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're on the album with backing tracks on them. It was such a thrill. Oh, fun. I'm sure, yeah. And what, what line is it from the poem that, that was picked up? Like um, 
nothing in common but us. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a good line to pick too. Got a good ear that uh, that a uh, <laughs> hip hop artist has. So, yes. so I, I and that I realize you write songs too as well. That's something I didn't know until I was yeah. looking at your website. So, what? How does that compare to poetry? Uh, is there is there a process similar or is it completely different? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm brilliant with the, uh, the I, I work best when musicians take my poem mm-hmm. and then they work it into music. Because actually, I think partly because of my West of Ireland kind of brogue, if you like, um, there's a lot of lyricism in, in my poem, poems. So some of them really lend themselves to, to being turned into music. In fact, um, I've got a new book my sixth collection um, based on some research here, um, which uh, Claire Watts, a folk musician in the West of Ireland, is now taking six or eight of the poems from that and turning those into songs. But again, she's taking the poem and and working it through. And then often then they'll come back to me and go, look, we need to do a bridge here. And I'll go, yeah, I know what we could do because these are the lines that, you know, lend themselves to repetition or whatever so so we often do that back and forth um have done it the other way around as well um with uh a u.s band called war war poets um so they gave me a track a music track (laughs) and i wrote a song to it but it just it wasn't native to me you know to Mm -hmm. do that was um it wasn't the kind of words I would normally do. So yeah, I find it easier the other way around. Maybe I'm just lazy. <laughs> um, well, we're kind of coming up on time. I don't know, do you have to rush and get off somewhere or uh, do, can you have a little extra? Because we have two poems yeah. left and I'd like to do both of them. So um, let's, uh, so, and, and this has a long explanation too. This is uh, the to poem in two languages uh, between the fever hospital and the poorhouse. Um, do you want to talk about that and, and, and read that? Sure. Yeah. So, so my current research, I'm doing a PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I'm uh, looking into um, the lives of Irish children who were the the children of famine um, immigrants to Australia. So the Irish famine wiped out half the population of Ireland. And there was, it, it was greatly exacerbated by British rule in Ireland you know, large quantities of food were still being shipped out of Ireland during the famine. Um, And one of the places people went to for, so people got evicted and then had no resources, no food. Um, So they would end up at workhouses to try and um, survive. And when families um, came to the workhouse, they were separated at the gates. So the men and women were separated into men and women's wards and the children were taken away to children's wards and only children under two were allowed to stay with their mothers. As soon as that child turned two, they mm-hmm. were taken away to the children's ward. Uh, so many families lost touch with each other and never knew if the others survived at all. Um, and, and I'm looking at children who ended up in Australia in incarceration and, and long separated from their families also. Um, so I, I, I was home in April last year for the first time in three years because of COVID and being locked in in Australia. Um, and I went to visit a workhouse really close to my home in Clare. Our county lost about a third of its people during the famine. So it's one of the worst hit places. 
wor- the workhouse in Kilrush was a really terrible place. Um, I've read so many accounts of the scenes outside it, which were a little like Dante's Nine Circles of Hell, to be quite honest. Um, And I stood outside. The building is now, it's been um, turned into a a local hospital. But I was standing under the trees and there were crows calling, call, 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 which means where, where, where in the Irish language. And I was just absolutely swept away and all these words in the Irish language came back to me. I used to be very fluent, completely fluent um, in my younger years, but, you know, 30 years in Australia have eroded that a bit. Um, But I found myself writing this poem in the Irish language. So here it is. Yeah. And could you read it in the Irish first? If you, you yeah, I'd love to. And maybe you can listen out for the sounds of the crows and this ancient voice of our country. Either Ospadel Goller, August Yok, Namokth, Puka Bjog in Orda, Skomelbog Bon, Sonahe Imaro Golov on Crown Giruil, A Casa Casa Erangwe, a near a dui, A Casa Casa, a Gleag Segue gone through, the Akini gone fragra, Shkreka, Snakrevaka, Broga, Nabreakon, a Bwint Makala Os, the Shkradil, Croata, Co, 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 co will to a casa casa, makala na brekon, a shneev is a curry, fihulus galeen a spera, golog mona dolce, fadolok sanair, puka bjog in arda, scamel bug bon, a taring taring de guinevarog olive on crown girul. A glex away gone through the acne gone fragra. Co, 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 co will to a wami. Tararash them a wami. Tararash. Kilrush Luankoska Virsvirdo. Between the fever hospital and the poorhouse, little ghost on high, soft white cloud. Caught in the empty embrace of the wintering tree, turning, turning on the northwesterly wind, turning, turning, calling on the bitter wind, your unanswered entreaties, screeches in the branches, cawing of the crows, echoing your desolate cries, caw, 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 where, where, where are you? Turning, turning, Echoes of the crows weaving and twisting in the silver light, a trace of turf smoke lingering in the air. Little ghost on high, soft white cloud, pulling, pulling against the empty embrace of the wintering tree, calling on the bitter wind, your unanswered entreaties. Caw, 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 where? Where, where are you, mommy? Come back for me, mommy. Come back. Till rush Easter Monday, 2022. And that was um, between the fever hospital and the poorhouse. So, so your your PhD is done. Is that is that right? And then the book is about is is ready to go and looking for a publisher. Um. So PhD is finished. Mm-hmm. First draft. Uh-huh. Um. Um, I've got my final exam within the university, uh, the exam panel where you defend it, um, in um, 
July, and then after that it goes to an external international panel. Um, so within it, it's about 100,000 words, the oh, whole wow. thing. So it's got uh, research and it's got creative practice essays within it, like the process I've gone through to write the poetry. And then it's got a poetry collection within it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that poetry collection um, is called Shang, which means hungering. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, is... I have a publisher committed to take oh, to yes. bring it out next year, but I, it hasn't been announced, so I won't. Oh well, won't well, say. let me say congratulations, and that's really wonderful news. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah. How was it? Um, you know, because I think most of your poems I read have a personal angle from like sort of a speaker that's your perspective, at least. Um, yeah. Was it different to write from and sort of put yourself? Was it difficult to put yourself in the past for these type of poems and find your relation to people, or no? No, I mean, this, this work has just immersed itself in me. Um, I first encountered some girls um, from an industrial school in Australia um, in 2017, when I was asked to write a voiceover for an art exhibition in poetry. And um, I started investigating and I thought, gee, there's a lot of Irish girls in this. There's a lot of Irish names. And these were 15-year-olds, 11-year-olds who were arrested in brothels in, in Sydney in the um, 1860s and 1870s. And just horrific stories of abuse. They just absolutely entered my heart and have haunted me ever since. I've, their voices. So I've been into the archives and there are testimonies um, from the school are handwritten in page after yellowed page. And I would wake in the night with their voices in my head. So I almost never felt so connected oh, to, wow. I'm completely haunted. I, I've spoke, you know, I've written um, in the thesis and in some essays that have been published about this sense of dialogue with the ghosts i think i'm very open to that and you know one of the things i wrote about is um that the archive for me has been like a thin place i don't know if you know that in in irish um, tradition the concept of a thin place is a place where the spirit world and our world are so closely connected there as if they're separated by a thin veil mm. um, and as if you can pass through and speak with the others and i mean i grew up with this idea that um our our are lost, you know, our beloved departed are always with us and that we can always talk to them. So that's been a part of my growing up always. So I think it was quite natural for me to assume that with these, you know, ghosts in the archives that I could have a dialogue with them. And that's what I've done in through this book. Um, I mean, for me, it's been a major work of decolonization. I'm, um, you know, opening up history that has not, you know, an angle on the famine, which has not been written about before at all, particularly not in this way. And, you know, true to the traditions of my homeland, I'm, I've invested a lot of protest, poetry kind of um, techniques. And, and it, it's not like I feel I'm using techniques, uh, to be honest, 
it was really hard to stop writing the poetry. And as a result, it's a very swollen volume, um, which may have to be edited down. But for the moment, it's busting at the seams with all these ghostly voices um, and uh, including my own kind of, I suppose, uh, my own voice is interwoven into it. And I, I bring in family stories that have never before been published either um, or recorded. Um, you know, they're stories from my my grandparents who grew up under the British regime. Um, so, so stories of political violence from their childhoods are interwoven into it too. So it's, it's, it is actually deeply personal in that sense yeah. also. Yeah, well, it's, so, it's really fascinating to hear that because, you know, so many poets talk about the way they feel like they're, you know, the, the, the best poems especially, or so many of them, just seem like they come out by themselves. And oh, like, as if they're coming absolutely. from someone else, like you're channeling something. Yeah. And so, so the uh, idea that, you know, there's some thinness through maybe the past, maybe time is like compressed or something and, and you're actually hearing and some of the consciousness of something else is seeping through or who knows what, there's so many mysteries in the world, which is what makes it a fascinating yeah. place. You know what I believe as a poet, my biggest job is n to not get in the way of the poem. Hmm. You know, I think, if I trust the poem, it finds the page. I feel like the worst poems I've ever written have been where I've come to the page with an idea mm. and I've tried to put it down. I really am much better if I let it go, give it its head, give it its reins and off with it, you know. Yeah, and yeah. definitely this one has gone like that. It's gone like the wind, honestly. It's been amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we haven't talked much about process at all because the, the topics you yeah. talk about are so interesting. But but that is, I think, the main part of process is, is finding out how to get your own sort of ego out of the way in some way and let it yes. let the poem yeah. do what it wants to do, whatever the poem is. And yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, often I'll, you know, as, as I said before, when I write a poem, it's always something that's been going around in my head and I may or may not be conscious of of that, you know, or strongly conscious of it. But by the time I come to the page, it's often just ready to shoot out of there. Um, and And sometimes I find, you know, I will let it go. And of course, I'll come back and reread and try and edit it a bit. But sometimes I find if I try and edit sometimes I'm interfering with it mm -hmm. yeah. and I'm undoing some of the magic of it, some of the lyricism. Um, so I, I think that's interesting too. I think a lot of the creation can happen almost at a subconscious level if you trust it. Yeah. I, you know, I find that as an editor, I've mentioned this before, but, but a, a lot of times I'll have a poem and like one section will be off and I'll say, well, we'll accept this yeah. poem, but, but this just feels wrong. Like the voice doesn't feel like the same person or it's not right. Like it just doesn't fit. And then so often the, the person will say, yeah, it was workshopped and somebody didn't like the original. So I edited that part and I'm like, well, send me the original. And yeah. then it's so much better than, you know, cause there is something about like, there is this sort of, you create some kind of magical space and then, and then what yeah. happens there has its own, is its own entity. And if you, yeah, if you I meddle with it later, sometimes that just ruins the, the spell. I so agree. And, you know, actually, this process of doing this doctorate has really taught me that I have two completely different heads mm -hmm. in relation to writing. I have that journalistic, and that's where the scholarly writing, if you like, comes from the whole thesis development. And I would have to tear myself out of the poetry, which was almost this semi-conscious <laughs> semi state. You know, it's like a, a fugue state, honestly, in some ways. 
And I would have to absolutely rip myself out of that to go into that really thoughtful, pondering, you know, scholarly space to to write the other, the exegetical writing. So Mm -hmm. that's been a really interesting way of getting to know who I am as a writer as well. Yeah, well, it's actually, I mean, I um, interviewed Ian McGilchrist with the author of The Master and Emissary. So about that, because it is so fascinating, and that's, we actually are two minds. We're two people sort of hidden in one body. And um, and the one mind is completely different from the other mind. And so tapping into the one. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I know where I want to be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and his, you know, his newest book is about how we've, we've left, we've abandoned that, that, um, you know, the brain that has a holistic view and is wandering and making connections. And we've just so yeah, focused on yeah. the, the left brain, which is the technical, narrowly, yeah. you know, interested, um, you know, goal-driven, focused part. And so, um, yeah. you know, so his work is all about getting back to that that right brain, oh. allowing it to, to make the connections and the understandings that are deeper that, that, than, you know, what yeah. the left can do. And all this science. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Go back to the magic. <laughs> <laughs> a biochemistry major and a, and a, a science <laughs> journalist, so you could dump all the science. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we have uh, we're, we're past time, but let's let's close up with this last. Uh, you sent Ascento as the last poem, which is always interesting. Ascento, yeah. for people who don't know, is a, a poem that's composed of lines from another poet's work. So explain that, and then let's close out with that. So my beautiful, beautiful friend and publisher Jesse Landeni in Salmon Poetry in Ireland. Um, had they had the 40th anniversary of Salmon Poetry Publishing uh, a couple of years ago, and they asked a number of us poets to write a poem. And so I thought to celebrate Jesse's amazing contribution to poetry over 40 years, what better way than to go back through her books? And I just picked out all of my favorite lines from, from her books and wove them into this poem which does something completely different, but I think celebrates her work in in the spirit and also in the spirit of the West of Ireland, where I come from. It names places from my childhood, which, you know, is very special. So shall I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. Suggestions for living, Ascento after Jesse Lendeni. Lay still, the sounds heard, the beginnings of comfort. Feel the sea on the wind, the fall falling of the wave riding the horizon, and the waves recede beyond the cliffs, beyond the trees, rows upon rows, filling their long trailing sacks. In the darkness, the silence at the centre of the wind, the sound of rain. In the dark, Trace a circle around the willow. Time the slowest of movements. Fine rain against thin glass, against hard stones, like so many broken children. Grow into gypsy, hobo, a child of rain. No water as it seeps from sky, from the heart. Know the sharp light of sun on bottles broken in the street. The horizon is both this path and the edge of the sea. And memory is a fracturing, a breaking of light and dark 
with an old dog who knows all the secret places down the unpaved road to the calm bay, become part of something sacred, salmon in a small stream that rolled down to the beach, going home or starting out, believe in past lives, sit and wait for everyone to come home. Silver dogs in the sea unhindered, gazing down the valley to Liscanor, Lahinch and the bay. Walk the stones of Clahan, romantic Ireland smells of soft wind. Move slowly among ghosts whose bodies are anywhere but here. Lose place, follow another pack, maybe Take a wrong turn at the edge of the sea as the last storm leaves again. Lay still, the night moved past. Brush wonder as a child, fingers tapping at windows, reach out softly moved. And that's a beautiful sento, suggestions for living after a Jesse Lendeny. Is I saying it right? Lendeny? Lindenny. Lindenny, okay. <laughs> After Jesse Lindenny. Yeah, thanks. It's a beautiful sento. And I love the sento as a tribute form to a poet. It's wonderful. And it really makes me want to read some of Jesse's work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Anne. Thanks for being a guest today. It's been a, really a pleasure talking to you and sharing your poems. All fabulous um, and really fun conversation, too. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We'll have to have you on again sometime. And, uh, and good luck with the, the new book coming out and, and the PhD defense and all of it. Thank you. Great. Take care. And that was Anne Casey, uh, again, from uh, an Irish poet living in Australia. You can find more of Anne's work, so much more, at her website, which is anne-casey.com. That's Anne, A-N-N-E, hyphen Casey, K, or C-A-S-E-Y.com. Um, so thanks so much for Anne for being a guest. Now we're going to move on to the open lines, and how that works is how it always does. I could put this up on the screen. First of all, email your poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Um, and then email your poem there so I can show it on screen. Like I was showing the poems um, that Anne had sent. Um, here's the inv- and then uh, And then after that, find the Zoom link. And so I will be Zooming, putting the Zoom link in the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook. I'm sorry that Facebook had a little delay. We started a little late. Um, and missed the opening poem on Facebook, but we did have that on YouTube. If you missed, if you're watching on YouTube, you can swing over to, or if you're watching on Facebook, you can swing over to YouTube to catch uh, um, Amy Miller, who was the first uh, poet on. Um, but YouTube had some kind of glitch where it didn't start. But uh, anyway, here is the Zoom link. Pasting it in, pinning it to the top. Join us if you'd like to share a poem. You can share anything you'd want. You can share poems about current events. You can share prompt poems. You can share poems you published recently. You can share poems uh, that you've uh, just written today. Whatever you'd like to share, feel free to share it. If you just want to listen and enjoy the poems, though, stay right where you are. Don't leave. Um, And just sit back and relax. I'm going to take a minute-long break or so, and uh, I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, I put this in the wrong slot, but this week's prompt, I'll put this on screen from the PDF. This week's prompt was to 
Um, write a poem about a memory from a childhood using Frank's form in small town brewery blues. So, uh, so take a childhood memory um, and uh, write it in that form, which was a, an interesting stanza in which I'm going to call the dog again. I don't know. I've never seen it before. The first, it's a three-line stanza. The first two lines uh, end identically. And the uh, last one rhymes with those, those two rhyming words. So it's an interesting, like there's a repeat, repeat rhyme. Um, interesting form. And his poem took me uh, back to one. His, his poem was about working in a, um, in a brewery when he was young. And, and his poem took me back to a similar kind of experience when, uh, when I was about the same age. Um, and so I did work. This is my poem for the week. All through that summer, I spent my eight stamping cycling blocks for washing machines. I never knew how they worked, the cycling blocks, but I stamped them, stacked them, stuffed them in a cardboard box. The blocks were black, the ink was ivory white. It didn't really matter how neat the type. Smeared, unclear, or touched too light, it really didn't matter. They needed a part number and location no one saw. That was the chatter in the shop, how pointless was the task to stamp a plastic part hidden deep inside a washer. Even the machine that stamped the part was hidden deep within the shop, a little nook behind the lift. It felt as if the room would leap every time they hauled another heavy pallet up from the factory floor. But still I'd stamp them, stack them, slide my box across the factory floor. When the bell rang at three each day, my hand was already on the door. By summer's end, I knew that work meant work and nothing more. That was work, um, my, my Frank Dulligan-style poem. Um, and now let's go to the open line. So once again, only come on the open lines if you want to share a poem. And you don't have to stick around after you share it. You can go back to the uh, Zoom or, or not Zoom. You can go from the Zoom back to the YouTube if you would like to read read along with the poems. Um, it's a better experience on YouTube probably than Zoom. So, so read your poem when it's your turn. Then jump over probably. Um, but let's see who we have first. Let's go right to uh, Caitlin Buxbaum, who hasn't been on in a while. Good to see you, Caitlin. Hello. Yeah. So um, today was my last day as a middle school teacher. Ever um, I cleaned or out of my, the year? <laughs> um, hopefully ever. Oh, wow. Yes, so. ever. I'm saying it. <laughs> so uh, so what is it that you're going to do next? So uh, my MFA has already started, oh, sort yeah. of. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, we got our workshop packets a couple weeks ago, so I've got to write feedback. Um, and then my first residency is starts June 15th. So um yeah here we go well congratulations and good luck on the journey uh so so what do you have you'd like to share today um so i missed last week's because i didn't realize that it was not happening at the normal time which is a bummer because it was my birthday but sorry well happy um, birthday too (laughs) thanks (laughs) so my poem is on the translation prompt Ah, mm -hmm. and because frank was the person um and i haven't watched last week's show yet um so i didn't know how to do this week's prompt um but last week since he's irish i thought i would pick an irish poem Perfect. and um i was at the bookstore the other day and found a book that had that's um that has the irish translations in it so i looked at a poem before i like you know i didn't look at the translation until after but Mm -hmm. um women's christmas is how it translates oh interesting Um, (laughs) that's what the irish is i i don't know how to pronounce it um but uh i saw 
when I saw the poem in Irish, I saw um, a little blurb above it because I think it was on Twitter or something about like ocean, death, and storm. So those were the only three words I knew that the poem was vaguely about. Uh So I guess I kind of cheated a little bit. But anyway, so my fake translation is called Out Across the Ocean. Okay, let's hear it. Out across the ocean are funerals and storms in earth and air. Air out across the ocean can browbeat youth left languishing in voids and keep sad screams from scrunching brows of ghosts hellbent on fate, of slandering seasick beasts, of masters mired in rough green waves grown lonely for a song. As my name is any port in a storm far out beyond the weight, with familiar hate I cleanse my soul and find solace in the doldrums. Afar from the knots of lunging swells, away from dominating skullduggery, and cloistered from city lights on land, in solitary seas I'll stay. Yeah, fascinating. I, I love this prompt. This is an exercise. It was really fun to do. Um, and now part of the fun is to hear the poem. Do you want to do the actual translation? Sure. Um and I found some audio yesterday for this guy's poems, Sean o- Overden. Oh, wow. Um, and so I spent like half an hour yesterday listening to the Irish translations. And my sister and I actually, uh, 11 years ago on a road trip, met some Irish guys in Canada um, and they taught us a sentence. And so then we were all like gung-ho to learn Irish uh-huh. and at a bookstore on the way found these old cassette tapes for learning Irish, we were all like, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to learn it on our, you know, 12 hours of driving. But we listened to like three minutes of it and we're like, how do those letters make that sound? Uh And these look exactly the same, but they make different sounds. So I don't know if I'll ever get it. But um, here's here's the English translation of the Women's Christmas poem. And this is actually not the English translation I looked at after I wrote that one. This one is even different, but whatever. Same gist. All right. So Women's Christmas. There was power in the storm that escaped last night, last night on women's Christmas, from the desolate madhouse behind the moon, and screamed through the sky at us, lunatic, making neighbors' gates screech like geese, and the hoarse river roar like a bull, quenching my candle like a blow to the mouth that sparks a quick flash of rage. I'd like if that storm would come again, a night I'd be feeling weak, coming home from the dance of life and the light of sin dwindling, that every moment be full of the screaming sky, that the world be a storm of screams, and I wouldn't hear the silence coming over me, the car's engine come to a stop. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, very different. It's always fun. I just think it's so fun to have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) Have like one small guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Kayla. Great to see you again. Uh, Great to uh, have you on. I hope you can be on more often now that uh, you're out of... uh, out of the teaching (laughs) yeah planning to um and i do have a reading with a seattle group on zoom on wednesday so if anybody wants the link to that yeah put it in the uh, put it in the chat window yeah okay all right cool thanks caitlin good to see you yep take care bye that was caitlin buxbaum with out across the ocean a fake translation and uh, let's go again we have another poet who hasn't been on in a while uh zachary honeycutt is here let's jump over to him Hey, Zachary, how you doing? Hey, how's it going, man? Good. Haven't seen... I don't know when the last time you were here. Maybe like six months ago or something? I was Rattlecast 156. Ah, there we go. So that is... Uh, yeah, about maybe a year yeah. almost ago. Yeah. So what you been up to? Yeah, it's been two... 
been too long, man. Doing a lot of writing, getting back into it. I actually came today with two published poems from Warp 10 magazine that I'd like to read. Excellent. Yeah. So I think, uh, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. I think we got time for other. I think we'll do, uh, today will be, uh, Two page max, we'll say. So, and this is each one poem, one page, or one page each poem. So it's perfect. Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Okay. All right. So, this is Sonnet 13, the center of the universe. I recall that day when our eyes first met. You smiled at me from your ivory chair. And not one moment still do I regret the sweet memory of your being there. You waited for me with that eager stare. She thinks she's gravity? I cling to her? You knew your hair was blonde, your skin was fair. As if she's the sun, I revolve round her. Empty space revolves round her, and in her. There's too much debris between her and me. Her ego was big, then it got bigger. And she presumed our future history. She is the moon now, the side that is dark. And by her own words, she's snuffed out the spark. Hmm. Fascinating. I always, it's great to hear uh, the form of poetry there, Sonnet 13, the center of the universe. Yeah. And uh, let's hear the other yeah, one. Yeah, this is called The Alien Planet. And this was when my backyard had not been mowed for several months. And it reminded me of like Lost in Space or The Land of the Lost. And, uh, if you read it on Warp 10, you can see that uh, Lane, my editor, he's got one of the pictures of the planet from uh, Lost in Space up there. And, like, there's all this, like, you know, grass, long grass and stuff coming up out of the ground. But, uh, yeah, so this is uh, the alien planet. I have an alien planet in my backyard that replaced the lovely flowers as swiftly as body snatchers. And now the unfamiliar terrain of crowded green shoots, as high as a tall man, looks like some planet out of lost in space. I feel like the Robinsons, venturing into the unknown. Like there's some creepy space thing hiding in there. I'm going to miss it when they come to chop it all down. But not that much, because my father developed a mysterious rash ever since the pods spawned. And I've got the funniest feeling it's not alien vegetation at all, but rather poison oak. <laughs> that was good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Zach. Hey, uh, <laughs> when I saw your name up there, I thought, oh, we're probably going to get some, either a formal poem or some science fiction, which both we don't have a lot of. So yeah, we got both. I'd, <laughs> so perfect. I flipped the switch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, good to see you, Zachary. Thanks so much. Yeah, see you guys next week. Yep, take Bye -bye. care. Yeah, that was Zachary Honeycutt with uh, The Alien Planet and uh, <laughs> The Center of the Universe. <laughs> Let's go next to Dick Westheimer. Hey, all. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Well, I'm. Uh, it, it's a complicated question because I was out of, when I go out of my run every day. I check our mailbox, and in the mailbox were these three things. Whoa! I've never seen it, <laughs> including uh, Sonia Greenfield's book, and it just ate up the rest of my evening um, the rest of my afternoon that is so, so. Show, hold those up again if you wouldn't mind the two new issues are out because i haven't seen them yet hopefully they hopefully they came out oh. all right yes they're beautiful oh yeah yeah that's a beautiful cover uh that is uh caitlin oh, who did the cover for the one i can't remember and then uh matthew oh, well, fitz this mark fitzpatrick this is, for the other yeah mm -hmm. yeah anyway 
it's a good it's a good day when i get three collections of poems where i'll read every poem so excellent and of course you have one in there as well i do the uh, last poem in the uh, issue mr <laughs> westheimer which, yes, uh, kind of convenient as Tim Green convenient. Repro- reproduces my nightmare from kindergarten, <laughs> yeah. being at the back of the line in alphabetical yeah. order. Thank you very much for reminding me. Of... <laughs> All right, so what have you uh, got to share tonight? Oh, gosh, I have one or two Poets Respond poems, depending on time. Uh, the first one is called Musk. Yeah, well, as long as they're not too long, go feel free to do both. I think we have time. Yeah, okay, well, you can tell me. Um, and basically... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just read Musk. I'll, I'll read the epigraph first and, and I think it's self-explanatory. Um, um, but it's of, of, a of a piece, uh, Elon Musk tweeted, Soros reminds me of Magneto. And just for, for context, Magneto was, is a Jewish supervillain in the Marvel cinematic universe who survived the Holocaust, uh, like Soros. Um, he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. Hmm. Poem is called Musk. It's a sweet smell, somewhere between piss and peach. It's the pheromones that make dogs sniff butts and armpits reek. It drives some frantic, some to wretch, some to raise torches. The scent is familiar. Redolent of my people's fear, when Apostle Paul curled his finger at us, Jews. It's the stench of a man-child obsessed, a speaker in the tongues of comic book mutants. This is clockwork orange shit. This is droogs barking their secret argo. This is Martin Luther of Wittenberg calling the dogs to spill the spleens from rabbis. This is all the tropes that my people pull the strings, that the world dangles from our cartoonish noses, that we make our bread from the blood of believers' children, that the plague got the plague from us. It's like this. Musk, tweet, in code. Say the name of one of us. Say it again. Say he hates humanity. Say he rules the world. Chant again. Soros, Soros, Soros. To your kinder, it means Jew, Jew, Jew. You say it's not true. He's just evil, like the Jews. Every time it's a surprise, like a hurricane before there was radar, like an eclipse before astronomers, like a tidal wave. Every storm has a calm. Every crusade has a live goat that must be slain. Every pogrom has a libel. And yes, you are the king and his jester. To your gang of boys, you tell the truth. To us, you smell familiar, like an oil fire like a garbage dump, like burned hair and skin. Hmm. Powerful poem and definitely changes that, that must tweet. It was something I'm completely ignorant of. So talk about a dog whistle. I had no idea Magneto was a Jew, was Jewish. I mean, that's uh, that really changes the, the, in a lot of ways. I thought it was just a, you know, a dumb thing to say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a dumb thing to say. To say and yeah. it, was, it was doubled and tripled down on. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, 
of a piece of consistent. It's just the one where he just uh, sort of like undid the kimono and say, it's me, it's mm -hmm. me, it's Elon. This is, you know, this is what all my tweets have meant for all this time. Yeah. So, yeah, this is sort of the other side of that beautiful poem that you published so hopeful mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> and then, exactly mm -hmm. and here's one of the downers yeah well uh, uh, i think we should probably stick to that because a couple of people have come in uh since we did uh, oh sure that's a longer okay. one but uh but yeah thanks so much for sharing that it was a really great poem and uh yeah. i really appreciate it as always yeah thank you tim yep thanks see you yep bye, bye. this is dick westheimer of course with a uh, musk and um let's go next to nate jacob Hey, good evening. Yeah, and we'll say we'll shift it. We'll say uh, two if they're short, short poems, or uh, one one regular size poem. <laughs> so, what do you got Sounds for us, good. Nate? I've got the world's longest poem. All right. Well, that falls into my. <laughs> what is the world's <laughs> longest poem? I wonder. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Our longest is thirty pages, but um, yeah, we'll see. There's longer though. The, the Iliad, the Odyssey. I don't know. Okay. So, what do you got? I kept it to six stanzas. I've got a prompt poem. Ah, perfect. I really like this form, actually. There's something about... Usually you put the repetition at the at the end of stuff. So to have it beginning is, yeah. is an interesting take on that. Yeah, it was nice to write in form. Yeah, so uh, so uh, what was the title? Really? Anything you want to say about it, or do you want to just dive right in? Uh, it, it's, it explains itself in the poem. Okay. Uh, childhood memory. Uh-huh. Okay, that's good. Uh, I don't not it. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, whenever you want. Say anything more you want, too. Well, when I was young, uh, we were broke, big family, 10 kids, uh, never had anything extra. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is based on how things went from bad to worse. Oh, yeah. Called, Not everything should be handed down. Uh, Omaha, 1993. At nine, we were too poor to have my own bike. Scuffed knees, worn shoes, always go along with a bike. But clothes had to last, be handed down several times, like what is mine will be yours, yours will be his, and so on, until all these kids are clothed. We were barely hanging on, hung on ten thin years until we all sh all we shared hit the lawn. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'd never seen Dad hopeless, helpless, a hero fallen low. We picked up, packed up piles, all our living, our life laid low. No time to think, just move, take what matters most and go, go. The bank took our home, handed it down like an old shirt with life enough left in it. Dad always gave his own shirt to help others with needs like him, poorer than the low dirt. The bank took it all. The sheriff stood watch the whole time, serving and protecting the bank and its interests this time. We were not very good at being poor, bad poverty, bad poverty our crime. I went off to college after things got bad, then bottomed out. Left old clothes and footwear under the bed as I headed out. Later that year, I found my father wearing those old shoes. He was sorry I'd followed his footsteps. I did, but only when I had to. Oh, that's a great poem, Nate. Really excellent use of that form and, and really, really powerful stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, take care. Really good poem. Thank you. Uh, Nate Jacob with Not Everything Should Be Handed Down. Um, next, let's go to uh, Mike Bales. Good show. I actually did catch some of your show last week, but I it starts at 11 and I have to be to work at 1. I don't want to risk being late, so I don't oh, like yeah. catch the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, Sorry to miss it. I think that's the only one we have planned 
for for an early show and why I thought we might have more with the Irish poets, but but, but Anne is uh, in Australia, which worked out for the regular time perfectly. It's like ten a.m. there or something. Um, I like your spin of nature. There is a thing called On Being by Krista Tippett. Yeah. On mm-hmm. public Great radio. Mm-hmm. And she had a whole thing about the intelligence of plants where trees would warn each other, like if there even chemicals spilled on the ground, and they could warn trees each other, trees like miles away, and those trees miles away would be reacting to, to things that were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my Poets Respond poem from about a week ago. Um one odd thing, well, a friend saw, took me through a gun shop in in Marshfield when we were working there for flagging, you know, and saw all the guns. Um, it's something sometimes we do with our dads, like target shoot, and later on we stop doing it. Like for me, it was an impractical and I think a bad idea if I'd have any guns in an apartment building, mm-hmm. and I'd hate to think of an apartment building full of guns. Um Another irony is there's a huge gun shop just off Interstate 80 right by Grinnell, Iowa, near mm-hmm. there. Grinnell's got, like, the best liberal arts college in Grinnell College. is like, the best liberal arts college in Iowa. And then there's a huge gun store, like, miles away from the campus. Mm-hmm. And this, has, this more has to do with when that friend took me who actually was did hunting took me to this gun shop in Marshfield, Wisconsin. It's called Merchant. The store's on Main Street now, and the shopkeeper invites people in to see guns lined up on the shelves. Pick one up, he says, and feel its stock. At first embrace, the rifle feels like a toy, but it carries more weight. The body is camouflaged as if in a jungle war. It has the power to seduce. It has the power to take. The shopkeeper says it's for the sport and forget the children. What's a little blood spilled between friends? It's your right to hold and possess, he says. He's wearing a hood as if a cloak. His face is shadow we wear. Yeah, great poem, Mike. I remember that from a couple weeks ago. And a great turn there at the end. Really powerful stuff. I like uh, that Francesca Bell where she says maybe we're all complicit in certain things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I think that kind of touched this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Really well said. Great poem. I really, really liked it. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. This is Mike Bales with A Merchant. Let's go next to... Um, so, uh, John Lee uh, Rangan is here, but you can't... Um, can you come up? Or is... Uh, it looks like you don't have the audio on. Let's see. The audio is not connected. Can you do anything? I'll, I'll see what, how that goes. I'll go to um, uh, Nikita Parikh next instead. Hey, Nikita, are hey, you there? Hey, hi, Tim. Hey, yeah, great. Yeah, to, hi. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining again. So, great uh, to see you, too. Yeah. Thank you. So what do you have that you'd like to share? So, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, again, uh, it's like 3 a.m. <laughs> I know, I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> are you just normally a night owl? Do you stay up this late? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I like, and you know what, uh, the university is a ghost town at the moment, people mm. have left for the summer, and there's nobody in the hostel at the moment. It's just me. So oh, it's a little perfect. bit. Yeah. 
so um so we have a lake at the center of the campus and uh it's a beautiful lake it's called the atray lock mm-hmm. and that has sort of become the anchor of my life in the uk like the lake is the center and every movement away from it anywhere in uk kind of feels like a like a centrifugal force away mm-hmm. from the center and then back again so i have this relationship with this lake now so i have two poems about that Very uh, cool, yeah. the first one is called Yeah the first one is called spirit of the lake so spirit of the lock so and also apparently lock is this scottish word and they don't like using the word lake and there was this whole politics about it oh, so really? that is fascinating Oh I didn't know yeah. that that's interesting okay So in all, in all of Scotland there's only one lake everything else is a lock Oh I never I never knew so I'm learning things every day thanks yeah. for sharing that <laughs> <laughs> So it's spirit of the lock. So this poem is after two months of spending time with the lock and having a relationship. Eighthway Lock, University of Stirling, May two thousand twenty-three. On days such as these, when the sun is an ancestor looking at us from above, from behind the cloud curtain, and the cold, cold rain keeps me locked in. the lock comes to me it comes to me as a train of water splattering my window for what if some little droplet had once belonged to the lock what if it still carried the memory of being the lock what if it recognized this soft ache in my soul showed up because what you ache for sometimes aches back for you the lock comes to me like the dandelions a child blows away not knowing all the lovely places its petals end up traveling to here now in my warm little room the spirit of the lock engulfs me its pristine glass surface broken up into further beauty by the rain its resident swans gliding gracefully across a rain crusted surface oh beautiful yeah that is beautiful thanks for sharing that and i think that was short uh, why don't you do the other one too the night at unlocked bridge yeah, they're related sure. they're they're really one yeah. poem yeah <laughs> yeah Cool. So the night on the log bridge. So in this poem, uh, I'm still discovering. Like this was written on my first week here in Sterling, and I like this was when I saw the lake, the the log, for the first time at night. Because because until then I was too scared of venturing out alone at night. So yeah, night on the log bridge, bridge over Eighthway Lock, March twenty three for Evelyn. One step outside the warm concrete. and our eyes behold stars strewn across university grounds like flashlights as if the lake had extended an arm pulling this stretch of sky closer into an embrace a chill descends but look what rises like frisbees warm smoke rings of laughter in different tongues a drift heart pitched tonality unmoved operatic until they fall into a flattening curve disperse around your blonde braids become a frozen moment in a poet's mind startling periodically yeah beautiful poems about that lock thanks so much for sharing that um nikki that was great thank you yeah thanks so much hope you stay up late next week too <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank right, you good night good night as i nikki kita park with um two poems about the lock there let's go next um uh, if Uh, Janthi Rangan is next, and I think everything seems to be fixed now. Hi, Tim. Hi, Janthi. How are you doing tonight? Good. Um, uh, every time I uh, see you introduce a new um, poet, mm-hmm. I feel that's 
that's the best I've heard. And the very next week, another one comes who, who's more, uh, uh, you, you know, they are such accomplished people. They are. It's so great to just meet people it. too. You know, poets are all interesting. Yeah. So it's really fun to meet yeah. them and, and see what makes them tick and then hear more poems too. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, this week I wrote a, a prompt poem, but this is not, a, um, you know, repeat, repeat, mm-hmm. um, repeat, repeat, rhyme. It's rhyme, rhyme, rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear it, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so before I start the poem, this is, um, uh, this is my childhood poem. So um, it's quite some time back and I wanted to say the rin soap used in this poem it's a blue kind of soap that they used in India on white clothes Mm. so here's my poem it says using a paddle the right way I climb trees for my after school activity where plump jamun berries greeted me Redesigning my white uniform randomly. The blots needed a laundry paddle back to remove the resolute stains of purple black and squeeze out the last traces of lilac. My mom's anger, rinse soap, and thapi cursed the uniform color, but not me. I knew then why I didn't get the third degree. Washing sticks only clean um, dyes in fabrics, but stamp back, uh, stamp back the ink on epidermis if they are used on the kids. Oh, fascinating. I'd love that. another new thing to learn about. Thanks so much for sharing that, using a paddle the right way. I appreciate that, Jan. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. So Janti Rangan with uh, using a paddle the right way. And uh, last but not least on the Zoom is uh, Sandy Ianone. Hey, Sandy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. I'm saying that right. Ianone? You, you know, and you got it. You have it absolutely correct. <laughs> great. Absolutely. I'm yeah, so- I think the last time I was here was when Alice Petway was here. Uh, it's been a while. That was like two years ago, I think. I, I love the salmon poets. I'm a salmon poet, so I I always try to come and support my siblings. Ah, excellent. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. Well, well, maybe that's a reason to have some more salmon poets on then, so you can get some more <laughs> Sandy too. <laughs> a little bonus. <laughs> so well, it's also my dad's mm-hmm. birthday today, mm-hmm. and he would have been. He died last year. Mm-hmm. He would have been 87 today. So I thought I'd like to read a poem in honor today. Oh, that's great. Yeah, sorry for that loss, and, and happy birthday to him, though. Thank you. Thank you. So it's called The Next 30 Years. Over breakfast, my father calculates out loud the number of times he will see me before he dies, two times a year over the next 30. I hold my breath to stop the two-year-old girl in the picture on this sill from growing. Think about game shows, speed rounds with 60 digital seconds on the clock evaporating backwards. How day after day, 
thoughts of winning inferior prizes trick me into watching what the many faces of losing 60 seconds can look like. He counts spoons of sugar into his mug, stirs like a magician pouring milk into a tight fist and waving everything effortlessly goodbye. And I see now on this visit home the magic in my learning to walk, my father's bare hands just visible inside the photograph's border, ringed around my skinny arms, all my ancestors lined up outside the camera's focus to help him gently pull me closer to the escape. Even he can't teach me to resist. Oh, very touching poem. The next 30 years, uh, Sandy, thanks so much for sharing that. Really wonderful. And again, Thank you so much, Tim. Great to see you tonight. Yeah. I, I love the Rattlecast. Ah, thanks. Great to see you too, Sandy. There was a Sandy Unknown with the next 30 years. Um, and really, just the poems on the open lines tonight, I have to say, are uh, really amazing. So thanks, everybody, for sharing poems so far. I'll do a couple more that came in. Um, this is um, uh, Ted Guevara's poem from the prompt, the Dulligan, as we're going to call it. He includes a picture, as he often does. And so for those uh, just listening uh, later, I'll, I'll describe this. Um, this is a photo right here of um, a sort of an aerial view of a city, like a, a coastal city. And then somebody has his feet like, like a giant superimposed, has his uh, legs in the water, sort of uh, as if it's building a model of the city. So a very interesting photo from Ted. And now um, here is the poem. Urban Planner. So there you go, Urban Planner. The well enough stands alone. There's a crowd, but he prefers alone. An impatient ghost living on his own. Life is here, not in the blank of sleep. Never in that closed-in space, that nonsensical sleep. The breath of soul fears most that deep. He doesn't measure his height, afraid he might ration at the thought of stooping over. No, but he might. There is boundary. There is void. There is the night. He feels not everyone's cup of tea, not bitter, but an aftertaste of like tea. He would take pride if he was of aid to some degree. But such civilization of bays seems like him. There is calm in his work, city reference so unlike him. That And that veil over his back is not so dim. It doesn't ply over area or boundary, and certainly not space. He stitches not rivers, but the curves of space to his standing alone, just in case. He runs through a colonnade of constant pattern, like he is chased by the litany of this pattern, but in his hand is a blurred lantern. We feel our way to the bright of being alone, find a crew, but no secret to the standing alone, withstanding the new. We just have to materialize and not, and be not ghost and trust. Trust the tea our hearts may brew. That's great. I love that too. We feel our way to the bright of being alone. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Ted Bernal Guevara with Urban Planner, an ekphrastic poem too, it turns out. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. And uh, I got a couple more of these. And Carlton Johnson has a rattlecast problem here. This is Baltimore Crime Blues. So we're going with blues. And uh, once again, along with the uh, uh, Frank Donovan-style poem. And I'll, let me put this in a Word doc really quick. Make it a little easier to show. And um, this is uh, Carlton Johnson's poem, so let's take a look. 
Baltimore Crime Blues. Baltimore Crime Blues. I grew up Baltimore. After the age of nine, I did my homework and went to bed by nine. I lied to myself to sleep saying I am fine. As a young boy, I walked most days to school. It was only a mile to make it to my school. I was never an A student, rarely the fool. In back of the school, there was a large field where students played ball. I, in outfield, scored a run on error once my teammates squealed. The candy counter at the local drug store was a draw for young thugs. The store couldn't stop our wanting candy more. We went to the candy counter, protected by a blind spot, and load up our pockets with candies we never could spot. The different methods for helping teeth to rot. It has been decades since those shoplifting days. I have moved past those childish days. I finally learned that crime never pays. Ah, good lesson. Baltimore Crime Blues by Carlton Johnson. Thanks, Carlton, for sharing that one. And we have uh, one more. Um, last but not least is Katie Dozier up here. I got to read Katie. She's over in the next room uh, making me dinner, which is always nice. This is uh, New Student by Katie Dozier. Let's take a look at that. New Student. First, I saw Drew there, waiting in the second grade sea of colored pencils. Next to me, he asked who would win the, in a battle between his pair of pencils. And so I picked the chewed-up one, scrappy, barely a faded yellow stencil versus the new number two. He marched the sharpened soldiers up with their skin knees, the small one bruised and beaten till a perfect kick. The eraser fell to Drew's knees. And then I saw his smile, his missing teeth, his one dimple, freckles, a light breeze, as if the scent of lilacs had swirled straight through the concrete blocks. At recess, he plucked for me three dandelions with equal stems. You picked the right one. Recess ended, as it always does, and I learned that most bubbles pop, but some can effervesce. Float up, drop-kick the sky with a neon circle that battles the sun, the one drew colored on the corner of construction paper back when squiggly lines really drew heat, folded a paper airplane with a wonky wing for me. Now I see how far it flew. Yeah, I don't know what this form does. It's a great form. Uh, so many great poems. Thanks for sharing that one, Katie Dozier. Uh, of course, uh, Katie Dozier does the uh, poetry space with me. She's here. We were doing the uh, Wrightwood um, Arts and Wine Festival, and um, and uh, we did the Wrightwood Poetry Slam too. And um, the, Katie does the poetry space with me on Thursdays. We were talking about the Poetry Slam experience. Poetry Slam is the top for the week. That is only on Twitter. You can find it either at my Twitter, Timothy Green, um, or Katie underscore Dozier. Uh, to find the poetry space on Twitter, where you've probably got slam poetry, propaganda poet one at the uh, Wrightwood Arts and Wine Festival this year, the uh, sixth annual poetry slam that we had as part of uh, the festivities. And um, a lot of fun, so we'll, we'll be talking slam, and, and it's interesting, uh, all the stuff that performance poetry can do. Uh, Joaquin Zihuatanejo is the feature. It was a great time. Anyway, we're talking about that in the poetry space, too, with Katie on uh, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, if anybody wants to check that out. So... Let's see. Now it's time to wrap up the show. The perfect time, so that worked out really well. And uh, we'll do the Saiku really quickly. The Saiku, I mean, we talked about a little about echo poetry and things like that, a little bit of echo going on here in the Saiku. It was inspired by this article from the University of Colorado at Boulder, one of the best science schools actually around. Here we go. If you can see this, let me make it so you can see. Um, there you go. So here is the story. 
Um, come on. There you go. Satellites reveal a widespread decline in global lake water storage. And so basically, this uh, team used the Sears uh, satellites and, and other, other data to compile an uh, estimate of whether lakes are shrinking, freshwater lakes are shrinking or um, growing or, or staying the same. And they found the majority of lakes are, in fact, shrinking. Um, a lot of it not necessarily due to climate change, although that's on the list, but a lot of it due to uh, sediment runoff. And also uh, overconsumption of groundwater by human populations, which is a huge problem all over the place, especially um, it's timely given um, they just released a, uh, a signed a, an agreement for the Colorado River today, I saw, um, to, to use less water in the states that draw from that. But so much is wasted. We talked a little bit on the podcast about how much goes into um, like cattle ranching. And how much uh, water is actually used? It's like half the water in the Colorado River is used um, that, that humans use is used for cattle, actually. So, um, so interesting stuff there. But um, but they found that the majority of lakes are in fact shrinking, although a few in the places without people around them are growing. But mostly they're shrinking. So a lot of a lot of data here. A really interesting story. If anybody wants to check that out, the psyche that it inspired though is right here. And this is one of those psyche. I, I think. Um, I wonder if uh, this is actually an original. I I, I wonder because it's uh, it works pretty well as a haiku. I think someone probably already thought of this before. But here we go anyway. Glacial lake, half empty, half full with a moon. Glacial lake, half empty, half full with a moon. That is your psyche for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks everybody for joining me. A really wonderful. I was great talking to Anne. The open lines were outstanding. Amy Miller at the top was great too. Just this might be one of the best all around episodes ever. So thanks for being a part of it. Now, next week's prompt, even though I put it in the wrong place, it says this week, but next week's prompt is going to be um, write a poem about a cultural myth you no longer believe in. So there are a few poems incorporating mythology with Ann Casey's selection that she sent us. So I thought maybe we'd talk about mythology a little bit, but a myth that you no longer believe in, which kind of implies that you once believed in it. I don't know. But um, write about a cultural myth you no longer believe in. It's kind of a a little direction, but a lot of freedom in that. You can interpret it however you'd like. That is going to be next week's prompt. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be the return of one of our favorites. And one of the early episodes featured Francesca Bell. Um, so that, and that was almost four years ago now. So uh, she has a new book, What Small Sound. She's been uh, a Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner in the past. We've published her many times. We interviewed her in Rattle number, um, whatever it was, the, the Tribute to Mental Illness issue. Um, 56, maybe that was. Uh, she's been in, 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 you know, all over the place. Francesca Bell is one of our favorite poets, so we thought we'd have her back. We don't usually have return guests, but uh, she's one. She also has translations to of a Max Sessner, so we'll talk about a little bit about that and her new book, What Small Sound. That's going to be Rattlecast 196 uh, with a prompt to write a poem about a cultural myth you no longer believe in. And the guest, Francesca Bell, Monday, May 29th, the regular time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.